Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I'm trying to preach through the book of Romans. I don't know if anybody knows or not. I'm trying to preach through Romans. I've taken a few breaks from it. and I don't mean, I'm not just going to drive through Romans, you know, without stopping. I mean to take breaks from it. There are some Sundays in the year that, you know, necessitate changing, uh, changing direction a little bit. Of course, you always have to leave uh, room for uh, those moments when you have to change because you feel like maybe the Holy Spirit wants you to preach something differently, which uh, happens uh, sometimes, sometimes. And uh, anyway, Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. The Apostle Paul, in this great text of Scripture, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, the main point of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I expect to get to chapter 3 next Sunday, Lord willing, is that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, have the same problem. Universal guilt before God for breaking God's law. This is why the world is in the mess it's in. Because man, because of what he knows about God, has chosen to reject God. And because man has rejected God, God has said, You want a world without me? You want a world without my law? You want a world without my oversight? You want to to do your own thing? Go ahead. And God has let man pursue his own sinfulness. And one sin usually leads to another. One sin leads to another, going down, 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 down. This is the the big point of chapters 1, 2, and 3, is everybody is a lawbreaker. Now, if everybody's a lawbreaker, what does that say about you? (laughs) You're a lawbreaker. You have broken God's law. Now, sometimes we'll argue with that kind of statement. Well, not me. I'm not as bad as so-and-so down the street. I'm a lot better than my neighbor. I know people who are a lot more wicked than me. And that's a true thing. That's a true statement. It's a true statement. Wickeder than me. Now, we break God's law in two ways. In two ways. One, we break God's law externally. Out there where everybody can see. And most of you, I'm looking at you carefully... Most of you, I think, probably do pretty good at breaking God, not breaking God's law externally. I think that's pretty common. I think that a lot of the people you know, maybe in your, in your personal life, they probably are really good at not breaking God's law externally where everybody can see. Because the sins you commit externally, they have a, a pretty high cost, don't they? Let's say that a man goes out and commits adultery on his wife. And then she finds out about it. What happens? Well, we all know what happens. Nothing good happens from that. Or maybe you decide, you know, my bank account's a little bit light this week. And I need a little, I need to uh, supplement my income. And I need to get a little side hustle going. And the most, (laughs) the quickest, easiest way to make money is to what? Steal it. (laughs) 
Jump in your car, drive down state somewhere, hold up a gas station, make a withdrawal, drive home and make a deposit. But if you get caught doing that, what's, are there big consequences to that? Big consequences. And there are all kinds of ways people could break God's law externally, but we tend to not break God's law externally because the consequences are high. But where everybody breaks God's law without exception is internally. Internally. Breaking God's law in our heart. That was a good biblical illustration of a guy like this. Remember Jesus, he had these 12 dudes that ran around with him all the time. What were they called? The 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. One of those guys was named Judas Iscariot. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. He's infamous. And remember in that passage about the Lord, the the Last Supper, the last Passover, Jesus had me with the disciples. Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And they all start to say what? Who is it? Is it me? And Jesus says, whomever dips their sop in this cup with me, that's the one. Whoever dips their bread in the cup with me, in my cup, that's the guy who's going to betray me. Judas does it. And the guys are still saying, who is it? Nobody pointed the finger at Judas and said, I'll tell you who Jesus is talking about. It's him. Have you ever sat in church and heard a pastor tell a story and thought, I know who he's talking about? (laughs) No names are being mentioned, but I know what's going on there. I know the truth. Nobody pointed the finger at Judas. Now, the Bible says that he was a thief. He held, the, he held the bag for the disciples. He was the treasure. They say he was a thief. That's only afterwards. Only afterwards. Nobody knew Judas was evil except for Jesus. And we know that Jesus knew that because Jesus knew, John chapter 2, he knows what's in a man's heart. He knows what's in a person's heart. He knows what's in your heart right now. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5 for a second. Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus is talking, giving this Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about what's required to be a part of the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 20, here's what Jesus says. This is what it takes for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what's striking here, now here's the question you have to to ask yourself. Jesus says if you're going to enter the kingdom, your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, Is that true? Is that a true statement? Is Jesus telling the truth? This happens in another place in the New Testament where a young man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, believe the gospel? He doesn't. Jesus says, what does the law say? What are the commands? And he gives the commands. And he says, all these I have kept from my youth up. And Jesus says, you're right, you have. There's one thing you lack. Sell all you possess and follow me. 
And the Bible says, And the young man went away sorrowing because he had great possessions. This is, this is an interesting statement, Jesus says. Jesus says, except your righteousness exceeds. He's not saying that the Pharisees are unrighteous. He's not saying that they're evil beasts. He's saying they are externally righteous. Because I want you to notice the stories, the things that Jesus says following. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown to prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now look what Jesus says in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to do this sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He goes through, he lists a lot of things here in this passage that come from within. How do we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes and the Pharisees were known for their external, visual conformity to God's law. External on the outside. But Jesus says you have to surpass their righteousness. How do you surpass their righteousness? By becoming righteous on the inside. On the inside. When I was a kid, my dad used to tell this story about this little boy who was in Sunday school. And the teacher said, the kid wouldn't sit still. He kept getting out of his chair. And finally the teacher said, sit down. And the little kid realized he'd met his match. And he sat down. And then he looked at the teacher and he, <laughs> he looked at the teacher and said, I'm still standing up on the inside. You've seen it, haven't you, with your own kids sometime? Take out the trash. They rise from their seat. They go to take out the trash. But everything about them is saying, I hate this. I loathe this. This is murderous. This is killing me. Have you ever been that way at your work? <laughs> with your wife, with your husband? The inside. Jesus says you can only surpass them by getting the inside right. This is impossible. This is why the young man went away sorrowing when Jesus said this. This is why Martin Lloyd-Jones says the Sermon on the Mount is the most condemning portion of Scripture in Scripture. It it grinds you up and says that you have no righteousness of your own. It's an impossible task. Now what Jesus is establishing here in this reading in Matthew is he's telling the Pharisees, and he's telling you and I that God sees our hearts and thoughts and that God will judge us for our 
thoughts and what's in our hearts. It's more than just external righteousness. There's something going on in the inside. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Psalms 94, verse number 11. I'm going to return to several passages so you can get this in your mind. Psalms 94, verse number 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. He knows the thoughts of man. Now, I used to sit in church just like you guys every week. And I had to sit on the front row from the time I was 14 years old forward because I got in trouble for sitting on the back row. Because when I, had a, I had a little girlfriend, and we'd sit on the back row together. And you know, my dad noticed what I was doing on the back row. <laughs> and so he said, now you have to sit on the front row forever. And so from 14 until I moved out of the house, I sat on the front row. But I sat on the front row, looked right at my dad's eyeballs while he was preaching. And my mind was 100 miles away. The Lord knows your thoughts. And he knows they're futile. Look at Proverbs 24, verse number 9. Proverbs 24, 9. Now, if we were reading from the authorized version, it would read slightly different. It would say, the thought of foolishness is sin. But Proverbs 24, 9 in the NIV says this. The schemes of folly are sin. The schemes. What's a scheme? Something you're cooking up, it's a plan. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a way to get something done. It's a scheme. When I, was a, when I was a teenager, I worked at Walmart, and back then Walmart closed at 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. Now, my mom, she said, what time do you, does the store close? I said, 8 o'clock. She said, what time do you get done working? I said, could be 10.30. Now, that was almost true. <laughs> Sometimes we did have to do work after the store closed till 10.30, but not all the time. But you know what time I got home? Every night? 10.30. (laughs) What did I do for that two and a half hours? None of your business. (laughs) And my mom just believed me for, I I never, I just, I just, working the edges, you know, scheming figuring out how to get things by. God knows our schemes. He knows what you're plotting and scheming. The schemes of folly are sin. Look at Jeremiah chapter 4, verse number 14. Jeremiah 4, 14. O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? God knows what's in our hearts. And he's going to hold us accountable for these things. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 4 is a warning to Israel. It's a warning. Listen to Genesis 6, verse 5. It's that great passage where God is talking about the world in which Noah lived. God destroyed the whole world. He destroyed every man and every woman except for the eight people who got on the ark. Listen to God's word. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become. This is Genesis 6, 5. And that every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. God sees the heart. 
He looks deep within. Back to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. I don't, tell you to, I don't say to do this very often, but there's a place in Proverbs to mark. Proverbs 6, 16 is a place to put a little star by or something. Listen to God's word here. <clears throat> These are the things the Lord hates. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven are detestable to him. Here are these seven things that God hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. What's right there in the middle of verse 18? A heart that devises wicked schemes. God sees our heart. He knows this is, we, we violate God's law externally and internally. Externally, we tend to regulate ourselves, but internally, we're in full bloom, full rage, full blown madness. <coughs> so, this is what Romans 1, 2, and 3 are about. The universal problem is that everybody has broken God's law. And because they've broken God's law, they need something. Now back to Romans chapter 2. They need something. <clears throat> and Paul's going to drive this, he's going to drive this home that everybody's unrighteous all through chapter 3. But, but in chapter 2, 28 and 29, he says there's something that we need. We need a circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. A circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And he says, those who have been circumcised, who receive this spiritual work, these are the children of God. This is the people of God. I was talking to somebody in the church this week, and they said that they wondered what circumcision of the heart was. And they said, they wish we had, I'd said something about it last week, and I'm going to tell you what it is today. Circumcision of the heart. There are two circumcisions of the heart. There is a circumcision of the heart that is performed by God. Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6. The Bible says, God says, I will circumcise your heart so that you can keep my law, so that you can love me and follow me. Before you can begin to follow God, God has to do something to you first. He has to do something to you. He has to change you before you begin to follow him. So one circumcision of the heart is the one that is done by God. It's performed by God. It's something God does to you. <coughs> the second circumcision of the heart is one that is commanded by God for you to do to yourself. For you to do to yourself. Listen to uh, Jeremiah 4, verse 1. Jeremiah 4, verse 1. If you will return to me, if you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful and just and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground. 
Do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. God tells the Jews, he says, circumcise your own heart. Now, what is he saying here in, this, in these four verses? He's saying, get the idols and the sin out of your life. Cut it out. Circumcise the heart. So there is a circumcision of heart that is performed by God. It's Colossians 2.11. <coughs> Excuse me, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And one's commanded by God. Now, here's the last point of the sermon. Amen? The last point. You should be excited about that. It has a few subpoints. <coughs> How does this affect our lives now? What, what does it have to do with us right now? Circumcision of heart, done by God. What was all this about? First of all, the circumcision of the heart that is performed by God is connected to your salvation. The circumcision of heart performed by God, it is a seal or a mark of the covenant that God makes with believers. Now, I don't know if everybody here believes this or not, but I believe in a thing called eternal security. That is that once a person has been born again, and has received from God everlasting life, this is theirs forever. It is theirs forever. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. In the authorized version, it says that receiving the Holy Spirit is the earnest of your redemption. The earnest. Have you ever bought a car or bought a house? And when you're going to make a deal with somebody, especially if you're buying a house, you have to put some money down to buy that house, don't you? What do they call that money? Earnest money. It means you are in earnest. You are demonstrating it by, you're saying, I am going to fulfill this purchase. And here's my promise. <clears throat> now, I was, I was trying to buy a car one time from a guy. And uh, I said, I was trying to buy a used car. Went to a Toyota dealership in Kansas and the, <coughs> the guy, he said, now you got your own money or you want to finance this car? And of course, what's the answer? Finance. <laughs> I'm going to finance this car. Just a few thousand bucks, I think it was $7,000. Finance. The guy says, how much money are you going to put down for earnest? And I said, I'll give you 50 bucks. He said, not enough. I said, not enough. He said, yeah, you can blow off 50 bucks. You see, you might not come back. I mean, $50 is nothing. Well, he didn't know how broke I was. Because <laughs> $50 was a lot of money to me at the time. So I gave him $100. That satisfied him, right? I gave him the money to show him that I was sincere. 
Now, when Valerie and I, we, we moved up here to, where we live? Michigan. I, I, keep, I, keep saying, I, I keep saying Lawton. Some people say, yeah, here in Lawton, but it's not Lawton. It's wherever we are. Michigan. Sheboygan. Uh, when we bought our house, the realtor said, you're gonna, he said, how much earnest money can you put down? You know, and of course, I always want to put down as little as possible because that's the way I roll. But he was like, no, you need, to, you need to write a significant check here to tell the people you really are serious about buying this house. So that's what we did. And so because we put such a, you know, put an earnest money down of a certain number, it tells the buyer, tells the seller how committed we are, right? Now, in that same way, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he gave you the Holy Spirit. One-third of the Godhead is inside of you because you put your faith in Jesus. You are the habitation of the Holy Spirit. God is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And He is going to stay with you until you are redeemed. Now, the redemption of something is, is worth thinking about. Redemption is when you take possession of it. Positionally, we are in heaven right now with God. But actually, we're not. We're here. But there's going to be a day of redemption where God is going to send Jesus from heaven. Jesus is going to come back to this world. He's going to redeem you to himself. He's going to take you to himself. All these weird illustrations are in my mind right now. You guys remember when Walmart had layaway? You go down to Walmart, get a whole bunch of stuff, put on layaway and make weekly payments. And then finally, you make your last installment and you get to what? You receive it. You take it home. It's yours. Until God comes and takes you into the heavenly glory, he has given you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is yours. It's the seal. It's the mark that you belong to him. The NIV, listen how the NIV puts this. This is striking to me. Having believed... You were marked what? In him. (laughs) You were marked present in him. Marked down, noted on the record as being in him. The circumcision of heart. Is the covenant, it's the seal, it's the mark of the covenant that God makes with believers. Oh, I'll just drive this home, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Listen to God's word. 2 Corinthians 1, 22. The last part of verse 21 is the, the beginning of the sentence. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Jim, can you, Jim, can you see real good? Can you see real good? This is, my, this is a pocket knife. It belongs, this is my knife. Swiss Army knife. The kids gave it to me, I don't know, a long time ago. But can, can you read that right there, Jim? What's on the side of that blade? TB2. TB2. You know what that means? I'm TB2. That's my knife. Every knife I got, I got this little metal engraving thing, and I engrave TB Roman numeral 2 on it 
every pocket knife I got, every nice ink pen that I got. I've engraved my initials on it. <laughs> All the kids have a tattoo on their arm. <laughs> I put my mark on it. It's my mark. It's my knife. It belongs to me. All my books. Uh, Miss Kathy, did you give me that book this morning? You know what's going to be in the front cover of that before it gets home? My name. It's going to say Terry Basham, 2022, Michigan, from Kathy Chase, just like the other book you gave me. It's my book. belongs to me. And God, through the blood of Christ, has saved his people, and he's marked you with a mark. You belong to him. You are God's property. You are not your own, Paul says. You are bought with a price. You don't belong to anybody but God. You are his. He's marked you and sealed you with his Holy Spirit and said, you're mine. You're mine. And I'm never going to let you go. Back in Texas, I was, this is years ago, now I was knocking on some doors in Texas. This had this nice little brand new neighborhood. I was knocking on doors, telling people about the Lord Jesus. I knocked on a door. This girl came, came to the door. Her name is Angela Van Gundy. I wrote her name down. This little, I guess a little book I write names down in. I wrote her, and I, that's how I know her name. But what stands out to me is the striking thing that happened is she was a member of the Church of Christ. She went to the Church of Christ in our town in Texas. I don't know if you guys know what the Church of Christ is, but anyway, I don't want to talk about that. But she goes to the Church of Christ, and I asked her, I said, Angela, if you die today, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? She said, I think so. I said, have you ever put your faith in Jesus? She said, yes. And I said, so why aren't you sure you're going to go to heaven? She said, I don't know if, I, if I'm really performing good enough to get into heaven. I took my Bible, I turned to John chapter 6, verse 37, and I read it to her. And it says, all that, here's what it says, all that the Father gives to me, come to me, and them that come to me, NIV, I will never cast out. And I said, Angela, what does that look like it says to you? She burst into tears and she said, it looks like he'll never let me go. Never. Never let you go. When you come to him in faith, putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he will never let you go. It's burned into my mind, this girl standing there crying because she realized what God's word said. I didn't have to tell her what it said. It was obvious that she had received something from Jesus that he wasn't going to take away. This is the the spiritual circumcision. God does a work on us. He puts a mark upon us. Look in the book of Revelation. You have these two rival marks. You have the mark of the beast and the mark of God. God marks his people. He knows who are his. He knows who are his. You say, well, I don't know if I really, I don't know if I'm down with all this Holy Spirit business. I don't know if I agree with that. I want you to look at John 6, verse 27. John chapter 6, verse 27. 6 to 7. 
This is Jesus speaking. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus gives eternal life. The Son of Man gives it to them. Notice the rest of the next sentence. On him, the Son of Man, Jesus, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, this is an interesting thing. God put his seal of approval on Jesus Christ. When did he do that? It's in John, it's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, at Jesus' baptism, where Jesus coming up out of the water, what descends upon Jesus? A dove. And what is this symbolic of? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes down and settles upon Jesus. And what words come down from heaven? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is a status that you also have with God. The same thing can be said of you. Because you have been born of the Spirit. Jesus Christ has saved you, and God the Father has given you the Holy Spirit, and this is your eternal reputation. Your eternal reputation. My, my father's grandparents were Pentecostal folks. And they, and they were, I would say they were kind of high Arminians. They believed, my grandpa Chronic believed, that if Jesus returned while he was doing 56 and a 55, he'd miss out on the rapture. What, what a way to live. What a way to live. It's no way to live. No way to live. Secured by Jesus. And this is a circumcision that God does to us. This, circ- this circumcision of heart is very important. And you say, why does, why, does, why does God use this word circumcision to describe this? Why, why is it connected? Well, first of all, because like physical circumcision, it's personal, it's permanent, and it's painful. The new birth causes you to understand some things. And sometimes that knowledge causes pain. There's a preacher who I know, I don't really care for him, but here, here's what he said, which I think is, is worth thinking about. He was born and raised a Roman Catholic. Born and raised a Roman Catholic, and he said, when I saw what, what the Bible taught about being saved, I realized that probably for the first time in my whole family's history, I was the only Christian, and that probably every person who was my ancestor all Catholic probably did not go to heaven because they believed a different gospel. Sometimes the new birth can cause you to realize something. I heard a story of a missionary. He went to, I think he went to Papua New Guinea. He got to a village, preached the gospel. Some of the people there became Christians. And one of the men came and said to the missionary, Is my grandpa with Jesus or is he with, with the devil in hell? They'd never heard the gospel before. So where was this man's grandfather? He wasn't with the Lord. See, the, the new, there's, there's, some, there's some pain that goes along with this. It's something that, it's, it's, life, it's life-altering. It's life-altering. Note about the circumcision of heart. The circumcision 
of heart that is commanded. Well, that is connected to our sanctification. Sanctification. When the Bible says we are to circumcise our hearts, it means that we should cut off the callous, the hardness that is caused by sin. The circumcision of heart that is carried out by God is a blessing because it puts our salvation and the guarantee of our salvation in the hands of God. But this circumcision of heart that is commanded by God is something that you and I have to do to ourselves fairly often because of our sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word, you may not know what it means, but here's the definition. It's from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. The sanctified life is a life of personal fellowship lived out with the Father in the Spirit of Christ, seen in loving trust and obedient service. So sanctification is about living as a Christian, living for God, living for God. Sanctification is our faith in action. Jesus said this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? Why do you call me master, master, but don't obey me? Sanctification is connected to our sin, our sin, our life with sin. Matthew 5, 13 through 15 says, Jesus has called us to be holy. Be holy. Now, when I was a kid and I heard the word holy, it always depressed me. Does, that, does it depress you? Because I always interpreted holy as being no fun. All the rules and regulations. Well, being holy doesn't mean a life of no fun. You can still watch TV in the Super Bowl next Sunday. <laughs> you can still go fishing and hunting. Uh, you can still have a hot rod and race cars. You, you can still, you know, do all the things you want to do. There's lots of things you can do. Holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to treat, to love people like you love yourself. Not lie. Not commit adultery. Not worship idols. There's some things that are holy. Holy doesn't is not, being holy doesn't isn't the removal of fun. Being holy is the removal of filth. <laughs> There's a lot of filthy things in this world. Jesus has called us to be holy. Listen to that reading from Matthew chapter five. It's it's a good reading, Matthew five thirteen through fifteen. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the, you are the, light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds And praise your Father in heaven. Sanctification is living a life that brings honor and glory to God. Honor and glory to God. Now this this is harder than it seems. I'll put here to to say that there's 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 a practical reason not to commit sins. Because when you commit sins, it makes your life harder. Harder. Authorized version, Proverbs 13, 15 says that the way of transgressors is hard. The way of transgressors is hard. Ephesians, I put down to read Ephesians chapter 4, 17, all the way to Ephesians 5, 15. 
but I'm not going to read it. But basically it says, be an imitator of God like a little child imitates his father. I was standing outside one day talking to, some, talking to somebody, and Mitchell was standing beside me, and I'm standing there. And uh, Valerie told me this later. She said, you're talking to this guy, and she said, you had your hands in your pockets. There was Mitchell with his hands in his pockets. She said, all of a sudden you went, and spit. <laughs> and guess what Mitchell did? <laughs> Same thing. People, kids just imitate us. They just, they just follow along. It says, be an imitator of God as a dear child. Be like him. Well, but we're, we're seduced by sin. It leads us to, we have these two natures, two warring factions inside of us. Listen to, Ephesians, listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as, as long as it is called today, so that, you may, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness. We have this love-hate relationship with sin, don't we? We love to sin. We hate what it does to us. And we, we really, most of us hate sin in other people. <laughs> That's why Jesus says not to judge people until you get the sticks out of your eye, you know? Microscopic examination of other people, and you got this big beam you're knocking people out with. Sin is deceitful. It, it has an effect on you more than you know. It hardens you. It puts a callus over you. Callus. It makes you hard-hearted. I would venture to say that if you come to church on a Sunday and you've been living in sin all week, you don't like church. In fact, if you've been living in sin all week and you come to church, have you guys ever had gout? You ever had, everybody had, ever had gout? My, my brother, he has suffered horribly with gout. I was at his house one time. He was down in the basement, and he had his foot up on a, on a, on a little footstool, and he had the, gout, the gout was on him. And one of his kids came by and bumped into his foot. And, man, I've seen my brother erupt before, but, man, he went ballistic. Whoo! I was like, what is wrong? I was like, I was like, what is wrong with you, man? Chill out. But his foot was so inflamed with that gout, it was just so painful. Man, it looked, looked awful. You've been living in sin all week, then you come to church, it's like somebody stomping on your gout-ridden toe. <laughs> Everything makes you mad. Preacher preaches too long, Amen. Music all stinks. Lights are too bright. That's kind of rare here, but <laughs> they're bright today. The parking lot ain't plowed. <laughs> Temperature's too hot or too cold. So-and-so didn't shake my hand. It's a big old sourpuss. Sin, it corrupts us. We don't realize it, but it has an effect on us. If you want to see what a church looks like that's been deceived by sin, read 1 Corinthians. Go to Mike Ekins' small group. Is it Thursday, Wednesday nights, Mike? 
Everybody go to Mike's house Wednesday night. <laughs> Not this week. And there's, look at 1 Corinthians with them. That church is a mess. Why is it a mess? Because of sin. Sin is really wrecked on. This is a little this is a little line from a song. This will It says this about sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go, slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay, and sin will cost you far more than you'll ever want to pay. We're called to sanctification. We're God's people. We're supposed to live holy lives. To live a life that brings honor to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. To bring glory to Him. Have you guys ever been to Arlington National Cemetery? Have you ever been there and seen the changing of the guard? Man, isn't that, isn't that so incredible? Those guys who are that, that core of guards who, have to, who are the, the guards at the unknown, at the unknown uh, tomb of the unknown soldier, they have to take a very high, their, their code of conduct is incredible. All the things they won't do just so they can have the honor of walking back and forth and guarding that tomb. It's incredible. Because they represent something bigger than themselves. You and I as Christians, we are the same. We represent something bigger than ourselves. We represent the Lord in this world. We're called to circumcise our hearts because we get into sin. It makes us hard. It hardens us. And we have to cut it away. Scrape it off. Cut it off. This builds up on us. So we need a Savior. And we have one in Christ. And we need sanctification as well. Let's pray together.